This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, Brian. Hi, Katie. And hello, listeners. Now, Brian, you grew up right here in L.A. I sure did, on the the mean streets of Brentwood. (laughs) And I know you've been obsessed with politics as long as you've been able to talk practically. (laughs) Guilty as charged. So tell us about today's guest, our latest Wonder Woman, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who represents California's 43rd Congressional District. Well, to start her career has certainly had longevity. She's been a fixture in the California political scene since before I was born. She was elected to the California— Stop bragging. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm so youthful. (laughs) She was elected to the California State Assembly in the late 70s, then to Congress in 1990. She's represented L.A. through some very notable and difficult moments in its history, including, for example, the riots that followed the Rodney King verdict. And while she's been in politics for a long time, lately she has really captured the public's imagination. This is Maxine Waters' moment. She's a big hit among millennials who call her Auntie Maxine. They get T-shirts and coffee mugs with her now-famous slogan, which we'll talk about. And she is not mincing words these days. She recently said that, quote, the United States of America is being represented by the most despicable human being that could possibly ever walk the earth. (laughs) That's pretty clear. Tell us what you really think, Maxine. So I suppose now is the time to mention, Katie, that the idea with our Wonder Women series is not to endorse a particular viewpoint, but instead we're having meaningful conversations with women who have made a big impact in their particular fields. That's right. And as I alluded to earlier, Congresswoman Waters certainly made a huge splash last summer in an exchange with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. We'll get to that as well. But we started by asking her about President Trump's recent comments decrying immigrants from what he called shithole countries and her reaction to uh, what he said. When you heard that, Maxine, may I call you Maxine, by the way? Yes, absolutely. When you first heard that, what was your reaction? Well, you know, it was just a feeling of disgust. You know, I have been watching this president and paying a lot of attention to what he says, how he acts and his tweeting. And I've known for a long time 
uh, that this was a dishonorable human being, that this was a person with no good values. And I thought, you know, I'd heard just about everything that you could possibly hear from him. And when I heard this statement about shithole countries, I thought, this is it. You know, we have got to put the pressure on, not so much to the people of Congress. They know, and they should be doing more. But we've got to keep saying to the American people, this is your country. You have got to make sure that you put pressure on your elected officials, that you show up, that we do everything that we can to get this man out of office. So what do you think is the recipe for doing that? I mean, you know, we've heard this before. You were saying impeachment yes. Yes. Uh, a few months ago. Yes. and and. People hear this, they're mortified. Yes. But what is the path forward? Well, you know, I I have hope that our special counsel, Mueller, is going to connect the dots in a way uh, that people cannot deny it, uh, that you can easily see that he's been involved in collusion, that he's obstructed justice, that he's been involved in money laundering. And when you add all of that to what he's revealed about his character. I don't know how members of Congress are going to be able to stand with him. So I have a lot of hope that Mueller is going to reveal information about him that will make people understand and believe how dangerous he is. So clearly to me, at least, the remarks were racist. Do you think that Donald Trump is a racist? Donald Trump is a racist. And I said it this morning on MSNBC. I want it to be known by everyone that I am not unsure about how I feel about him and what I've seen and what I've heard. And the interesting thing is now it seems that even in the media, print media, you know, electronic media, etc., you're hearing others say it more and more and more. And so, yes, I'm sure that he's a racist. And what do you th- make of that change in tone and change in sort of characterization of the president? Well, uh, first of all, for me, I cannot help but think, why did it take him so long to understand what I think I have known for a long time? Going back, even taking a look at his history, where he and his father denied uh, rental units uh, to African Americans and had to settle that. And there are other kinds of incidents that uh, has helped me to come to this conclusion. Uh, But I think uh, for those who are willing to say it for the first time, it's that they can't doubt themselves anymore. They can't say, uh, maybe... Uh, you know, people are rushing to judgment about him. Maybe he didn't really mean it. I think now more and more people are saying, oh, no, he has demonstrated without a doubt that he is a racist. Why do you think Donald Trump says these things? I mean, he's with a lot of members of Congress when he does it. It's not as if he says it even privately. So what is motivating him to do these things? Do you think he's got mental issues or do you think he's a jerk or what what do you why why is he doing this well you know i've had some people say to me oh you know he's strategic he knows what he's doing i don't think he can help himself i think this is something about his basic character i think this is something about the way that he has learned to deal with the world in the business world, with his family and all of that. I think it's the way he's been socialized, and I think it's the way he's been able to win in certain ways. Uh, And so I think that he can't help himself. It comes out, and I I really believe that because sometimes he tries to so-called walk it back. 
you know. So I think he is um, out of control. It's just very—it's unfathomable to me that he does this. It's so self-sabotaging. Yes, yes. Well, uh, let me just say this. Uh, I think one of the most recent denials he's made is with the Wall Street Journal. And he is basically saying that he did not say what they're saying he said. Uh, But uh, this period of his, uh, this year that he's been in office, is replete with that kind of stuff. Don't forget Billy Bush. And the recording that was made where he talked about grabbing women by their private parts. And now he's trying to say that really wasn't my voice uh, on tape. So I think he can't help himself. I think that he's dangerous. Uh, And what bothers me is that, number one, he is negotiating with other countries and representing us and he's alienating uh, other countries. Do you, do, we, do you think that any of this sticks? You know, I wonder if it all becomes white noise. And, and I wonder if people become inured to this kind of uh, rhetoric and this kind of behavior. Well, could you imagine if any other president had no, of paid course. off— a, well, If any other president had paid off a porn star yes. to keep quiet about yes. their— extramarital yes. relationship. Yes. And that wasn't even the top story a couple That's of days right. ago when it That's came right. out. No, as a matter of fact, there's not been a lot of discussion about that $130,000 to the porn star that was paid off by Cohen. <laughs> Can you believe we're talking yes. about this? <laughs> but, 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 yes. but back yes. to my question, yes. though, I mean, yes. does it matter? Well, here's what. It won't matter if it is sub rosa, if we don't talk about it, if we don't discuss it. And it's not so much about just saying, I'm worried. We have to talk about this in relationship to the democracy, to our country. This is a man who doesn't care about the Constitution. He doesn't care about the protocols of government. He doesn't care about anybody but himself, really. Uh, But I think we have to keep reminding people how unusual this is, how abnormal it is, and not allow it to become normal. So you mentioned Bob Mueller, the yes. special counsel, yes. doing this Russia investigation. Yes. You've been out front on a campaign yes. to protect Mueller. Yes. What are you protecting him from? Well, as you know, this president has demonstrated that he will cross over the line in anything. I mean, when he decides that he wants to punish someone, when he decides he wants to say something nasty about someone, he has no filter. He will do it. And I think he was poised to fire Mueller. I think he still would like to do it. But I think that enough people rose up, uh, and not just members of Congress. I organized 171 members, but you could hear some Republicans mumbling, he better not do that. And so I think that enough people, you know, stood in support of Mueller in different ways that caused him to at least back off at, at, to this point. Can we do one one or two more Mueller questions, just as long as yeah, we're on yeah, the yeah. subject? Sure, Is that sure, okay? sure, sure. Just because I want to mention her poem that did so yeah. well. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So <laughs> you recently wrote a poem that did very well, uh-huh. like the rest of your social media posts. Can you read it to us? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, a message to Mueller. Stay strong and stand calm. Continue to investigate them all. You are indeed answering the people's call. The Kremlin clan is going to fall. Around you, the Democrats are building a wall. We look forward to the day. To prison, they will all be hauled. <laughs> a regular William Wordsworth. Yeah. <laughs> 
So you've asked about this investigation, what is Trump so afraid of? Yes. What do you think he's so afraid of? Well, I absolutely believe uh, he certainly knows what he has done and who he has been connected to. And he knows what Kushner has done. He knows what Wilbur Ross has been involved in and all of the rest of them that's, you know, his allies around him. And so he knows if the investigation continues that they're going to find out what he has done and what his connections are to Putin and to some of the oligarchs of Russia. And so he would like to stop it. He has put forth a lot of effort, starting out when he thought he could co-op Comey and get him to uh, not go forward with the investigation as he asked him not to do. And so I think he's afraid he's going to be discovered. I don't know the extent to which You know, he has been involved with Russia and the extent to which he's been involved in money laundering. But I believe that it is substantial. So you mentioned in your poem the Kremlin clan. Yes. Do you believe the Steele dossier that basically says Putin has some kind of blackmail on Trump? I believe that there are a lot of things in that dossier that are true. Uh, You know, I keep hearing from the FBI and others that it has not all been vetted. I wish they would get through with the vetting so that we will know which parts of it are absolutely true. But I do think uh, that a lot of it is true. And Trump has never said, I wasn't in that hotel room. You know, I don't care what you say. He's never denied that. And, of course, we have learned that this is the way the Russians work. They blackmail. Uh, They lure you into situations so that they can have something on you. This is supposed to be common practice with Putin in particular. You've been a member of Congress since 1991, but there was a moment last year when you really lit up the national stage just to set the scene. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin was testifying before the House Financial Services Committee where you're the top Democrat, and you became frustrated and said these infamous or famous (laughs) three words. Reclaiming my time. Is there some reason why I did not get a response uh, to the letter that I sent May 23rd? So, uh, Ranking Member Waters, first of all, let me thank you for your service to California. Being a resident of California, uh, I appreciate everything that thank you've you done very much, for the community uh, I there. I don't want to take my time. I, I also I have appreciated re- the opportunity to meet reclaiming with you my time. several times reclaiming my when time. we were doing our, our reclaiming my time. The time belongs to the gentlelady from California. <laughs> Just say it for us one more time, Maxine. Reclaiming my time. <laughs> Reclaiming my time. I think that should be the yes. title of your memoirs if you ever write them. <laughs> well, you know, I think that he had been taught that if he could take up the time complimenting me and saying nice things about me, I could not get to question him about why he had not answered the letter that we had sent. And in fact, are are those the rules of the House where if he does, it it takes away from your time period, your questioning time period? That's right. It takes away from our time period. And it's nothing new about those words, you know. This is the regular order of business, and it has been used by other members. It's used from time to time. And for some reason, people heard it 
for the first time. <laughs> well, I think it meant more than just reclaiming my time. Oh, I think okay. that was symbolic for a lot of things at this moment in our history. Why do you think it, it captured the public's imagination? It went viral and has really become sort of your theme. <laughs> I know. I don't know. I've thought about it a lot. I think um, one thing that happened was here you had a woman uh, who's the ranking member of the Financial Services Committee. It happens to be an African-American woman, and you had a rich, powerful man who's part of the uh, president's cabinet, uh, who is now the Treasury Secretary. And for me to just not be intimidated by him, to not allow him to get away of uh, what, what he was trying to do, I think it was inspiring. And I think it helped people to have hope that, gee, we've got some people there uh, that are willing uh, to take them on and to, you know, force them to have to answer questions and to, you know, deal uh, with the issues that are before them. So I think it might have been a little inspiring. Yes. What kind of feedback did you get, Maxine? Oh, my goodness. All kind of feedback. As you know, there's a man who created a song. That's right. <laughs> sort of a remix of yes, Reclaiming My reclaiming Time. Reclaiming My Time. And so I was on uh, The View and they surprised me with him coming out of the audience singing, reclaiming my time, and the audience joining in with applause, you know. What did you think? I was shocked. I said, I can't believe, first of all, that he's a good singer. He's excellent. You want to talk about the things I've done? Yeah. You want to speak on the battles of the But the, I, I tell you what the most interesting thing about it is. I have a lot of women who have decided that they were going to make some changes in their lives. One person talked about a divorce, and this was a man, really, about how uh, he felt, you know, he couldn't go on with his life, you know, because it had been so traumatic for him. But he said, I'm reclaiming my time. <laughs> and I hear all kinds of stories like that. And then, of course, these cute little things that happen on the Internet at Halloween, there was these little girls, kind of, they had them dressed up like me, you know, with kind of a jacket, suit jacket, and little pearls and earrings. And one was sitting there with a pumpkin set reclaiming my candy. <laughs> <laughs> and you hear all kind of stories, like people have taken this to fit situations in their lives, and they are using it to basically declare that something different is going to happen. And so I've enjoyed these stories. As a matter of fact, I'm writing about them. Yeah. Are you? Are yes, you writing a book about this? Not yet, but I'm... I'm, I'm uh, You're journaling? <laughs> yes. Is that what you call <laughs> That's it? That's what they call uh, it. Oh, okay. I'm journaling. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more from Congresswoman Maxine Waters right after this. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. 
Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And now back to our conversation with Congresswoman Maxine Waters. So I think a lot of people have gotten to know you recently as yeah. sort of a hero of the resistance movement. Yeah. But I don't think they really know you they don't. well. Yeah. So you grew up the fifth of 13 children right. in St. Louis. That's right. Your dad left when you were two years old. About that time. Tell us about your mother. My mother um, was um, a really beautiful woman who, uneducated, she only went to third grade. And she came out of an interest in history because her father was not married to my grandmother, her mother, and he married someone else. And that family became a pretty prominent family. And the daughters of that family went to college, and the relatives on that side were quite different from my mother's side. My mother's side was rather poor. And I was raised partly with my great-grandmother because my grandmother died pretty early, and she helped my mother. My mother uh, was this young woman. At 16 years old, she married a man about 30-something years old. And I think a lot of that had to do with being poor and with uh, your grandparents saying it's okay, you know. And so she had all uh, five or six of us Uh, by my father, and I don't know all of the information about how she decided to leave and go to St. Louis. I mean, I don't understand Where was this then, before St. Louis? uh, Arkansas. But was interesting that the first five children were all born in different states, and I think it was because my father— was uh, didn't have uh, a talent or a career. He was like a handyman. Mm-hmm. And so I think he traveled wherever there was work. So I don't know how she managed that. I don't really understand how she took her children and left. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he followed her at one point, I think, to St. Louis. And that's when I was born at home without, you know, we had no health insurance. Uh, I think um, a midwife, um, very poor, uh, went on welfare, and I think he was there for a while, left, and then came back 
when I was about two years old. Yeah, so I didn't know a lot about him. Thirteen mm-hmm. children, yes, and very poor, yes, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. family, yes, and yet your mother must have given you all something. Special. Oh, she was strong. Now she was very, very strong, and amazingly. Uh, kind of self-educated because she didn't get a formal education, wrote lovely letters, and she was a survivor. And she was married a second time. There were two children that was born in between the first marriage and the second marriage, and all the rest were born to the second marriage. It's like a whole a different family. But she was strong, and uh, we, you know, she raised us in church. Uh, we went to church every Sunday, went to Sunday schools, a lot of hard work, because don't forget, the first uh, three were girls, uh, the first four were girls. And so we did everything. We had to do it. We shoveled coal. We washed windows. We fixed broken things. I mean, we did everything. But I want to tell you, I'm very grateful for it now, because I depend on nobody, <laughs> you know. Right. I can, you know— Whatever I have to be prepared for, whatever I have to get ready for, whatever I have to do, you know, we're in an old house, for example, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, lights went out. I said, where's the fuse box? You know, I know how to go and put, I went to store up all some fuses, I put them in the box. My husband didn't quite know. (laughs) (laughs) So she taught you how to be strong and independent. I'm curious, uh, of the 13 kids, uh, are are many still living, and do you still stay in touch with them, Maxine? Oh, yes. I'm in touch with them. Uh, as a matter of fact, long before my mother passed uh, three years ago, I had started maybe 15, 20 years ago of having a Mother's Day luncheon. It's kind of like a family reunion, but it happens on Mother's Day. And so all of the family participates, all of the my siblings participate in this luncheon, and now you know, my nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews, they all participate. And uh, we would honor her like, you know, a queen. And, you know, she would be center focus. Well, she yes. only, so she, how old was she when she passed 97, away? 97, 98. 98 years yes. old. And that was three years ago That's that right. she passed away. Right. Mm-hmm. But the all 13 kids are still living? Oh, no, 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 no. We have at least four of them have passed. Yeah. Um, along the way. So you moved here to L.A. Yes. in 1961. Mm-hmm. You worked at a factory. That's right. As a telephone operator. That's right. As a teacher at Head Start. As assistant teacher. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't want to gild the lily there. <laughs> what drew you then to get involved in politics? Well, I think it was uh, my time in Head Start. The Head Start program was and still is very special for me. It was during the War on Poverty. It was a new program at the time. It was time. a new program under the big War on Poverty, where Sergeant Shriver and others had been had decided uh, that they were going to deal with poverty, and they were going to put funds into creating programs that would help people get jobs, help people get job trained, uh, help people serve as interns with elected officials. All of this was coming about. This was a very exciting time. And so I, at that time, I was a service representative for the gas company, and I had a friend, and she heard about the War on Poverty and the Head Start program, and we talked about, you know, this program is going to be very important. It's going to give little children from poor families and from working class families an opportunity to have a preschool education, which, you know, was kind of unheard of, except for if you were rich or you had money, you were wealthy. And so we both tracked it down 
and we applied. Oh, I got the job she didn't. (laughs) (laughs) There's increasing scientific evidence that early childhood education is so critically important, Maxine, as we know. And yet there was a piece in the New York Times Magazine talking about how preschool teachers are paid pitiful wages and really treated with very little respect and considered babysitters. How do you see that changing? Because there's such a disparity between children of means and children of poverty when it comes to their vocabularies, when it comes to really starting them off on the right track. How can can we change that? Well, you know, at one time, this country was moving toward embracing uh, the fact that we had to invest in our very young children and provide preschool. Now, we always had a few right-wingers who thought, no, they didn't want a preschool. Uh, this was putting their children in the hands of uh, others too young and all of that. But really, there was a, a feeling that this was very, very important. You know, when I look at where we are today with right-wing conservatives who don't have—they don't want government to support education. They want to privatize all education. And when I take a look at uh, the way these private post-secondary schools are ripping off, you know, the government, I am almost— numbed uh, by the fact that we have gone backwards. But you're absolutely right. To the degree that you invest in education for young uh, children, uh, not only do you get them prepared for elementary school, but you help them learn to think early. And we were taught in Head Start to help individuals, children, understand that they were important, that they were good. And so I... I love Head Start, and I believe in Head Start, and I'm worried because uh, there are efforts to spread out Head Start without more money. It's interesting. I just want to point out there was a study that showed for kids of means versus kids of poverty, Mm -hmm. by the time they're five, the vocabulary gap is 30 million words. What? Yes. And then if kids aren't at the same level by fourth grade— they never, never catch up. It's never going to catch up. So I think that just shows how critically important early childhood education That's right. is. That's right. We should, the Congress of the United States of America should be doing everything possible to invest in preschool education. So uh, you got elected to the California mm-hmm. state legislature. Yeah. And... Your signature cause, it seemed, at that time was divesting from apartheid-era South Africa. One of of the important issues I dealt with, yes. So now there's discussion on college campuses and elsewhere about divesting from Israel. Mm -hmm. How are those movements similar and different in your mind, and and do you think that's a good idea? Well, you know, uh, divestment has always been kind of controversial. Uh, When we work to divest... Uh, and I worked on divesting our pension funds from companies that were doing business in South Africa. I was very sure that all of those companies, American firms in particular, that were there uh, and they were a part of the exploitation, uh, they were part of not only the uh, underpayment, of uh, their workers, but they could see how they lived. They could see how the apartheid government treated them, but they were only interested in their bottom line. And so that moved me to say, no, this is not right. These American firms cannot be there 
basically siding with the apartheid government against these people that they're exploiting and they're working for pennies and all of that. And so I felt very comfortable with the fact that we should get involved in divestment. I'm hearing a lot more about this movement with Israel. And so I have to admit that I have not paid as much attention to what goes on in Israel as I was paying attention to what was going on in Africa. And so I am learning. I joined J Street yeah, uh, just to learn more about, because they seemed, uh, and they are, I'm convinced that they are, that they are credible in the way that they evaluate what is happening and the way that they deal with the issues and the way that they take responsibility and the way that they sometimes don't agree, certainly with Netanyahu and others. Uh, They say that they're pro-peace and pro-Israel. It's an organization largely started by Jewish co-founders, but they they are for a peace agreement. And I agree with them and... uh, I follow them a lot. But they advocate divesting from Israel? No, they do not. No, so divesting from Israel is hugely controversial and complicated. And and what are your views on that, Brian? I'm opposed to it because I think there's no moral equivalence between what happened in uh, South Africa and what is currently happening in Israel, um, despite the profound differences that I personally have with Netanyahu's government. I don't think divestment is the right way to move them to change. But it's interesting. It's become a big topic of conversation among a lot of young liberals in particular. It is. And one of my dearest friends who I really need (laughs) so often to be able to talk to died. Did you ever hear the name Stanley Scheinbaum? Yes, of course. Yeah, he was. Long time, very famous uh, Democratic Jewish activist in L.A. Yes. And he was an advisor to me. You know, he helped me through some of these issues. You uh-huh. know? So I will keep up with it. Yes. And I will see. Yes. You represented the district where there were major riots, of course, mm-hmm. after the mm-hmm. Rodney King yes. verdict. Mm-hmm. Of course, I was covering that yes. uh, on a daily basis. And <laughs> and you tried not to excuse but explain why yes. people were rioting. Right. More than 60 people were killed. Lots of That's shops right. and businesses destroyed. It's been more than a quarter of a century. Yeah. When you look back on these riots. Yes. What are your thoughts today? Was anything really accomplished? Well, here's basically what I think and what I was thinking then. Uh, After I was elected, and in that district that I had at the time, there were several public housing projects. And supposedly we had programs at the city level that was dealing with job training and uh, dealing with trying to get uh, young people employed because their employment rates were very high. But every time I went through, whether it was Nickerson Gardens, Jordan Downs, Imperial Courts, Gonzag Village, all of these places, I could see nothing but young men hanging out, hordes of young people. And I could think, why aren't the city resources getting here? Why don't we see the job training programs? And I decided to create one myself. And while I was there doing this work, I learned an awful lot about how people were living and why they were living that way. First of all, real poverty. Secondly, lost hope. 
these young people didn't think anything was going to happen to them. They couldn't get a job. They didn't have any money. Uh, they didn't think anybody cared about them. And so their lives were absolutely separate and apart from what goes on in the other part of the city. It's another world. And so when it happened, it was almost as if I knew that something was going to give. And I attempted to describe the hopelessness. You don't agree to riots as being the answer. But what you have to understand is that if you have this consistent poverty and you have hopelessness and you have abandonment, uh, that something's going to give. And that's what I saw. Do you think things have improved? Oh, over the years, yeah. Things have improved. But, you know, the way that the conservatives talk about it, it's as if you don't continue to build on progress. We put money there. Look, nothing happened. You know, we put money there a long time ago. Things change. But it takes time, is your point. Well, it takes time. And to move families and children from generations of poverty takes even more than time. It takes time plus time. And so, yes, there have been changes. And yes, I think there have been setbacks. Uh, uh, But I don't think that our country and our government have been prepared to deal with the complications of poverty and how to unwind it and get people out of it. So coming back to your personal story. Yes. There was an article last year in the Daily Beast, Uh and the headline was, Maxine Waters, From Most Corrupt to Resistance Hero. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about the first part of that headline. That must have hurt a lot. Well, I wish that I could say it did, except I have heartened over the years because I have been involved in controversial issues and I have fought against the established way of doing things. So I've been criticized and I've been called names. And I'd be happy to discuss with you what this is all about. And I think about it a lot now uh, in terms of how it evolved. And uh, here's what. When the recession took place, where uh, there was a subprime meltdown, which brought us to basically a crash. When that happened, one of the things that happened was a bank, a black bank, that my husband served on as the board of directors, who never took any director's fees, uh, just wanted to make sure that we had a minority institutions in the community, and he had uh, retired from that even before this incident took place. But when it took place, the president of the Minority Bankers Association came to me and said, this is a disaster. It put them at great risk. They said, we, we'll go out of business. We've got to do something. I said, yes, because I work with minority institutions. So I called the Treasury Secretary and asked him if he would meet with the representatives from the minority banks. And he said yes. So just to give some background to our Mm -hmm. listeners, the the controversy at the time was, as you said, there was this bank in the community where your husband had been involved. And the criticism of you was that you would intervene to try to get bailout money in support of this bank, just so people understand. But so people also understand. Small banks, community banks, and minority banks can't get into the treasurer's office. Yeah. Jamie Dimon walks into the treasurer's office like he owns it and the big CEOs of the banks. And so they need some help. I am not above giving help where I think help is needed. And so 
Republican inside the treasurer's office, Maxine Waters, controversial husband. They try to say he was serving on the bank board at the time. He was not. Uh, But both of us had money in this bank. And so they tried to say that I was doing something special for a bank. When they came to me, it was representing all of the banks, the minority banks. And so uh, they met with him, uh, and uh, it became a story. As a matter of fact, there was someone in the New York Times who got a call with this. And I handled it very wrong because when this person came to me, uh, because they'd gotten a call from the Republican and asked me about this, I wouldn't talk to him. I said, you're out of your mind. I mean, I just handle it wrong. And I think that this story really developed out of the fact that uh, I resisted engaging uh, the reporter at the time. And we should know you were cleared by investigators eventually. Absolutely. And we we always knew we would be. Is it frustrating, frustrating, Maxine, that, that this sort of label kind of pops up and seems to haunt you now and again? Well, no, here's what I I have come to grips with. It's the same way that I deal with airplane flights. When I'm on the airplane and I'm in the air, no matter how restless I am, no matter if I had fear, there's nothing I can do at the time. (laughs) I have to stay on that plane and keep riding, you know what I'm saying? And so, of course, this is going to pop up. And one of the things that I do believe is that everybody knows that we were totally exonerated, uh, that they found none of that to be true. Uh, And the other thing is, you know, if your constituents develop trust uh, because you have dealt with them in a trustful way, it doesn't bother them. Let's move on, and I want to get your thoughts as a strong African-American female who's been involved in politics for a very long time. How you feel about this so-called reckoning that we're in the midst of in terms of women reclaiming their power and reclaiming their time and standing up and speaking out? Well, I come from the women's movement. Bella Abzug, Gloria Steinem, Patsy Mink. I mean, this was part of my development. And I think what either we did wrong or we were not able to do well was we did not keep it going so that we entered into a point in time where young women said, you know, I'm going to have a career and I don't want to be seen as a brow-burning woman the way those women were. And we do it differently, except it has come full circle except it has come full circle with the focus on sexual assault. And so I'm pleased that women are willing to speak up, and now they, we know there's a difference because, you know, at my age, we came from a time when men whistling, uh, when men uh, talking about how good you looked or what your body, I mean, we just thought that was the way it was, you know what I mean? And so, you know, I'm hearing these stories about women in workplace situations and we always heard about the casting couch. Now, that we always heard about. And we everybody just took it for granted. That's the way it is. But now that's being undone. And women can come forward, and they can say it. They can talk about it, and they know it's something wrong with it. The only thing that I worry about is that I want—and I think this will happen— uh, at some point in time, there has to be a way by which we have— the opportunity to understand. And is there a difference between rape and putting your hands on somebody 
and saying certain things. I mean, we got to figure all that out. Matt yeah, Damon yeah. tried to say that, uh, and he got demonized, if you will, yeah, for making sure. those comments. It's, sure. it's a very, very fraught time right now, yes. and I think emotions are extremely high. Uh, are you yes. optimistic this is going to translate into changes in policies? Oh, and yes. oh, especially yes. even on Capitol Hill. Oh, I was yes. shocked to hear that there was a whole fund to help people who had been accused of yes. this, right? Yes. I mean, t- talk yes. about that. What? Yes. Yes. As It's like discrimination uh, in the workplace and in government where, you know, people have complaints and they're real. And so there has to be some structures that are designed to deal with that. We had one. wasn't very good, we found yeah, out. Yeah, isn't it? We discovered wasn't it, it wasn't very wasn't good. Wasn't it designed <laughs> primarily to pay off the, a victim so they and wouldn't talk? And keep them talk? quiet. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, and I guess we didn't pay enough attention to it, but we did find there were settlements uh, that were made. There was a 30-day cooling-off period. All of that's being changed now. The women have gotten together, and they are redefining uh, the kind of support that women should have uh, who have complaints that they come forward with. Let me ask you a political question. Yes. There's a lot of optimism now among Democrats that you all can win the House this year. But there's been a lot of angst and a lot of consternation over the unpopularity of your leader, Nancy Pelosi. Uh And many Democrats have said it's time for her to step aside, that she's hurting the cause. What's your reaction to that? Well, first of all, I know Nancy Pelosi very well. We've worked in this state together, and we worked on voter registration many years ago. I think she might have been chair of the party at the time. She's strong, she's smart, and she's politically a genius, really. And we would not have Obamacare but for Nancy, and I can name probably a few other things. And so she has done a fabulous job. This attack on her started with Republicans. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they demonized her. San Francisco, Republican, Nancy Pelosi, what have you. And they took it out and they worked it. And so I don't like the fact that Democrats would pile on to what Republicans started and the way that they use this to demonize her. Of course, there has to be room for young people to come in. Look, I'm 79 years old. But the millennials like me. You know what I'm saying? They're saying, but so I don't know if it's age as much as it is, you know, how you frame what you do. When you're the speaker, and she has been the speaker, and when you're the leader, and you're balancing everything from the liberals, you know, to the conservatives in your party, it takes an expert and a good mind to do that. I like her. I don't think she should be driven out. I think that she's done a good job. I would stand up and defend her any day of the week. I don't know what's going to happen. Of course, we have young people coming into the Democratic Party. They're hungry, and they want to move up. I'm kind of from the old school, you know, and I'm saying, look, you can't just jump over everybody. You know what I mean? It takes a little work, you know, to do this, and so— I'm sympathetic. To so the among the among the millennials, yes. <laughs> uh, with whom you're so popular, there's a there's a label you've been given lately. Anti, yes. yeah. Yes. Can you explain that label for people who don't understand it? I can try and explain it, and I think the uh, person who really kind of got it started uh, works at Elle magazine, a young creative writer, uh, Eric Thomas, 
And I think he started, and the way he describes it sometimes is complimentary in the beginning and sometimes it's not. It's like <laughs> that aunt who comes to your house, looks around, and talks about things aren't right and things should be changed. And just because she's done a little bit better in her life and now she's got a good retirement. And she, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a compliment. I was going to say, what part of that was nice? <laughs> I know. Uh, that... Uh, uh, but it's She's like— She's your aunt, and you love her. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you do. <laughs> and uh, she's bossy. Uh, she um, she takes advantage sometimes. Uh, she scolds. Uh, but, but, you know, when you're in hard times and difficult, she's always got that extra dollar to give you, you know. I mean, it's that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> you mentioned you're 79, yes. and we're going to let you go and enjoy yes. the rest of your Sunday. But how long do you think you'll be doing this, Maxine? I haven't the slightest idea. Sometimes, well, let me just say this. I am blessed in many ways because I have a lot of energy and I have good health and I'm not tired ever, you know what I'm saying? I sometimes ask myself, why are you doing this? Why do you continue to do this? And then something good will happen, like Alabama, you know? And then you go, oh, boy, we can get them now. (laughs) (laughs) Vote like Alabama. And so I go through these periods where I'm sometimes disgusted, and I think um, I should be off someplace enjoying life a different way. And then when something good and inspiring happens, and I see people being helped, and you get a good story about, you know, something that happened to a family, a veteran, a child, a senior, I just get all inspired all over again, and it gives me more energy, and I get up ready to go. Did you say (laughs) God bless those African-American women in Alabama? Oh, God, yes. I mean, to tell you, uh, you have to think about this. There was a time when in the South, in Alabama, people were so intimidated, they didn't even get registered to vote. They were afraid that the local grocery store was going to cut off their line of credit. They thought that someone's going to come and force them out of their rental house. They went about to. And just think how far they have come. They have come to the point where they're exercising power. And I'm just thrilled about it. 2018. Yes. What's your prediction? I think we can take back the House. I think we can do that not only because of uh, Donald Trump, but a lot has to do with him. And I think now for people who had sold, 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 sold on the Democrats and the party, that they see a big difference now. The big difference, like, you know how some people say, oh, it's no difference between Democrats and Republicans. They're all politicians. They're not saying that now. Uh, They see that there's a big difference, and I think that's helping a lot. I think people are inspired. But, you know, when you uh, think about the women, the women's movement and what's happening with racism, that now people stand up against, as, as you saw in Alabama when you took a look at those two candidates, and how there's no way that a Democrat could have been elected to that Senate seat. But a Democrat was elected to that Senate seat because not only are people not fearful and intimidated anymore, they're inspired. They know that there's a difference now. And I'm glad that the young people are seeing it because if you haven't had the experience of uh, racism up front, if you have not been denied, if you've not, if not been called the N-word, if you've not been told you couldn't eat at a counter, you don't really get what these people are talking about. I mean, they don't really understand that, but I think now they get it. 
Well, Maxine Waters, uh, thank you so much again for coming to visit us after church here in Los Angeles. And it's uh, been really fun to watch you in action, especially in the last year or so. And uh, we'd love to have you back on because— one thing is certain, we'll have plenty to talk about, oh, even in yes. two weeks' time. So maybe you'll come back down the road as the Mueller investigation continues and yes. have talk to us about that. I'll be happy to. I, uh, I try to keep the discussion going. I think that's so important. And thank you for keeping it going. Thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. That wraps up this week's show. The Invisible Studios in Los Angeles helped us out this morning on a Sunday morning, no less. So thank you to them and to our producer, Gianna Palmer, who joined us in L.A. for this one. A little bit of a boondoggle, but we're glad she's here. (laughs) Really selfless of you, Gianna, to abandon snowy New York for L.A. to do this one with us. Anyway, Jared O'Connell, back in the cold, mixed this episode. Thank you to him. Uh, to our assistant producer, Nora Ritchie, as always, and to Emily Bina over at Katie Couric Media. My great assistant, Beth DeMoss, I don't know how I would live without her, moves mountains. Allison Bresnick brings all things social media in for a smooth landing. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music, and Katie Couric and I are the executive producers of this show. So our Wonder Women series keeps on rolling next week. Uh, we'll talk to you then. From sunny Los Angeles, bye-bye. <laughs> bye-bye. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.